Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula and Hondo Gertz here with General Joe Anderson as today's guest. We're so excited to have General Anderson with us today because he's got incredible experience both uh, within the Department of Defense, having last served as Deputy Chief of Staff of the Army G357, which is essentially overseeing all operations uh, for the U.S. Army, which we could talk about a little bit later, and then is currently President and CEO of Raphael Systems within the U.S. So I've got to make sure I've got that done dynamic, right? And definitely want to get into that later today, too, because you're a U.S. subsidiary of a foreign uh, parent company, which uh, definitely has interesting implications in the DIB. So, uh, General Anderson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Lauren. Good to be here. Hondo, good to see you. Good to see you, Joe. Hey, uh, you know, we'll talk a lot about the end of your career and what you're doing now, but we're always kind of interested in, you know, how'd you get in the Army? How'd you get to West Point? What sets you kind of on this trajectory uh, uh, that you've done through this kind of amazing career that brings you here today? It was uh, all family. So I had a, every, every level of my family served. My grandfather was World War I. My dad was World War II. My brother was Vietnam era. And then it was my turn. And my mother was actually a, a whack nurse assistant. So uh, all my uncles, everybody, everybody did something at, during those conflicts. So when it came time for me, it kind of instilled a little bit of a, little bit of a patriotism isn't being about something being a little bit bigger than yourself. And that's kind of, none of them were career guys. None of them were officers. Uh, I'm the guy that went the different path to the academy. And that was based on sports initially, but grades got the worst of me because it was an engineering school at that point. So uh, that's what changed my course on, I still did things, but not, uh, not comp- on a club level, not the triple A level. And where was your hometown? Where- not too far away from there, Buchanan, New York. And you've been out a, a few years now, and I'm curious, any take on the private sector? How was that transition? Any big surprises? It's hard. So, you know, you, you, as Hondo knows, you know, loyalty in the military and teamwork and all that stuff is kind of a bedrock, a foundation of what you do. You know, out here, uh, it's not quite the same. Obviously, things, it's about business. It's about profit. So trust, relationships are not, it's not the same as being in a foxhole with somebody when somebody's shooting at you when it's about making money. And, uh, and I, that's the unfortunate part of the, in my opinion, on the outside world and how you try to rectify that, correct that, build and improve upon it. I have not seen that as an easy path. Well, you've shown great interest in supporting tech companies, not just um, in your full-time job, but serving in an advisory or board capacity to startups or non-traditionals. And something we talk a lot on our show about is how DOD's shown a lot of interest in bringing startups into the the ecosystem. And you, you dealt with that on the inside and now as an advisor. Can you talk about why that's so important? Because I think I had a pretty good feel of what the capability gaps were in the DOD. You know, and, I, as, and as I watched multi-domain operations get, as that watch was being built, it became very clear, you know, from an airland 
perspective, airland battle, to how this was getting a heck of a lot more complicated. And in the niche capabilities of a lot of these bright companies, I just always found fascinating because they tend to be, back to the question you asked about outside, when you're part of a big OEM, it's a big machine. When you watch these small, niche, very capable, talented companies pull engineers together, scientists, whatever, as you watch that equation get built and, and, and the capabilities that they provide, it, it's first class and, it, and it's very effective. And so it, again, frustrating watching them as they try to break into the market though, to bring that to the customer because again, they're the small outside player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we often talk, you know, I think a, a, uh, a trade of the military right back to the speed of trust and going from kind of trust within the services, then we got joint trust, uh, trust with allies, uh, particularly over the last you know twenty years of uh, global war on terrorism. We we really saw how that drove. You know whether I was at SOCOM or at the Navy or in the Army, we walked down the hallway, we could go figure out what's going on. Uh, do you sense uh, the trust gap between particularly startups and the DoD, but I would say even industry and the DoD? Is that closing from either side, or do you still see a, a pretty wide gap? You know, a lot of folks are talking about it, but yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's closing, Honda. No, so you know, it's what you're watching. It's it's the it's the classic scenario we've all watched all of our careers. It's the infighting when you back to this multi-domain, back to who should own hypersonic weapons based on who should who should have long-range precision fires. You know, the roles and the missions of the services is once again kind of being challenged, redefined based on this new concept. And, uh, and I think as a, a subset of that or a result of that is the fact that people get back to the infighting again about that. No, that's my world. And I need, you know, I need more ships. I need more tanks. Uh, and, and I think, and I don't, so I don't think it necessarily has clarified any of those. It's only, it's only made it more complicated. Yeah. I think, I think that's uh, certainly true. What do you think with industry? You think the trust with industry any better, or is it still come down to have all the trust in the world? But I still got it's about a business relationship and about the only way we've been able to grow is through partnerships, you know, joint ventures, teaming agreements, and all that kind of stuff, you know. But at the end of the day, you know, on certain products that the that the people you're quote unquote going to bed with is also your competitor. Uh, you know, the Israelis like to call them frenemies. You know, so at the end of the day, here you are offering to partner to, to accomplish a product to get it in the hands of the warfighters. But then at the other hand, the people you're partnering with on that endeavor may have other alternative motives. Well, I I was going to ask about just that because trust and partnerships go hand in hand. And I'm curious for your take when you talk about these joint ventures or partnerships for growth are, what are the, what do the profile of those companies look like? How are you thinking about that as leader of a defense company targeting growth? Well, I'm walking into a playing field that's already been established. So it's diff- when I came in ignorantly about what that process was, you know, for Raphael specifically, Advanced Defense Systems, it was always about having to rely on the big primes to succeed. And that was, and that was their strategy here in the U.S. forever. You know, then, then got born this company, uh, which is now their American truly American company is a cleared company in the U.S., but doesn't necessarily have all the immediate, we're only a four-year-old company, all the capacity 
from a manufacturing, from an engineering, as we as as this ship continues to get built. Uh, so when could you take this on yourself and say, I'm not dependent upon somebody else to be the manufacturer of my good? Oh, by the way, that particular company's label goes on to specific missile. Not doesn't say Raphael. Uh, so what's the path ahead as we Americanize here to kind of break out of that mold? But it takes, but that takes investment. That takes capabilities. You know, we we just signed a public-private partnership with with the Joint Munitions Command for McAllister Army Depot to do exactly that. We we want the Spike missile made here, completely in the United States, and we want it made by the U.S. government. So it takes. I have to keep finding ways to build build that trust and. F- let people know that we are totally willing to think and operate in, in different ways than what Raphael has had to do since its inception. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a big deal, uh, but that can be done tomorrow. Do you see, and I'm going to pull this thread a little bit, Raphael, as part of your vision for growth to help enable companies who are looking to enter the market, or are you... Tra- Partnering with more traditional type companies. More traditional. Yeah, no, we need we need their established past performance. Their you know their their industrial base. You know, maybe their engineers. That that's 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 the one that's changing the quickest for me. We have our own engineering division now, and we're growing that by the by the contracts by the programs. So that's changing pretty. That's changing fairly rapidly. So the manufacturing one becomes, the, obviously that's, and you just saw that Raphael's partnered with Raytheon or RTX down in Camden now for the Tamir, based on Iron Dome and what the requirements are in Israel to get to get Tamir missiles moving. Yeah, so it's, and, and you've seen it from both sides, you know, for, for everybody that doesn't know all the code words, like G3 is operations, G5 is kind of more planning. Uh, and, you know, both have big input into the budget and the planning perspective. And you had those roles in the Army. And, and I think we've always struggled on the weapons side because we want a bunch of them. But then when we don't want them, we want to go down a minimum sustaining production rate. And then we want a bunch of them again. And then we kind of go through these hills and valleys. Um, do you do you have any ideas how we might do that more efficiently than kind of this boomer bust cycle we go through on the weapon side, either, you know, both from a customer side or a supplier side? Well, on the customer side, they got to figure, we had to do a huge, all events driven by what was happening in Europe well before Ukraine, well, way back to Crimea, all the way back to what was happening uh, in Indo-PACOM and more specifically, the at that time, the Korean Peninsula. So the, jug, the juggling act over uh, what types we needed, how many we needed was a constant juggling management game that we went through, and we really didn't have a good accountability. And as you know, then the question becomes, what's the supply chain look for that? You know, because we had we had things uh, like hellfires being fired still in the Mideast at people riding motorcycles, and that wasn't quite what a hellfire was designed to be used for. So we had to put a controlled supply rate, and we went, so as the G3, you are the requirements guy for all the ammunition. You're not the supplier, you're the requirements guy, your team, you know, and managing uh, the tamer, which is the master list of all the different munitions, how do you, how do you clean up and what do you think you're looking for? And there was clearly bleed over by echelon. What does a tactical unit need as you work your way all the way up from a, to an operational strategic organization and, and how you balance what that, what those weapons types, what those munitions were designed to do based on what the uh, war plans call for, which was supposed to be the driving factor 
right. for, forcing function. Right. But on the supply side, and I'm sure you're seeing it here, we, you know, we don't have the organic capacity. Do you think public-private partnerships are a great way for us to get back to that uh, sustainable supply chain that we can tailor to need more efficiently than kind of boom or bust? I, I think it was, it was awesome. And during our recent AUSA, that, that command actually has, that Joint Munitions Command actually has 17 facilities. So I know there's a big in, industrial base modernization plan, which is obviously important. How do you increase, you know, improve from, you know, limited production to full rate, LRIP to FRIP, whatever the case may be, how do you get there? But I think in the meantime, uh, maximize the capabilities. There is, there is un, I know everyone says it's all tapped out, I can, I can say with certainty, because I walked it last January, that it's not. So how do you how do you expand upon that, and then how do you partner with industry based on what's out there, what then what the big boys have and what they can do to augment you, and and by the way, allies. You know, and the hesitancy once you put again once you put a foreign. Uh, I'm going to use the F word in a different context. When you when when the foreign piece of it, everybody everybody gets. Everybody gets nervous, and, and their production capabilities in many of those countries, where, where a lot of our stuff is made—Germany, Poland, Spain—you name it—it it can certainly it can certainly do it for us. So, how are you thinking about on the industry side, uh, international partnerships like the ones you mentioned as we've entered this period of essentially deglobalization, or how are you navigating? We're just expanding it off the charts. And so as you look at, you know, as you look at, and so not as an advert, I'll be generic enough so it doesn't sound like I'm trying to advertise anything. As you look at our family of missiles and the use in 40 plus nations use that missile, 20 plus NATO nations use that missile. And from in your old world, when you talk about a standardization supply chain, you know, and you're talking about, uh, the missile currently in use, and again, I'll avoid, avoid names not to insult anybody, but I'm the guy that fielded that in 1997 at, at back then Fort Bragg under the now Secretary of Defense. And so I, I know what that system can do from bottom to top because we're the ones that tested it for the Army and fielded it. Uh, now here we are, you know, 30, coming up on 30 years later, it's the same one. And there's, there, are, there are capabilities out there that, that beat it in any category you want to pick to include price. And now we have to watch, based on what's happening in, in, in Ukraine, from a compromise situation, what types of stuff, technologies, capabilities start to get compromised based on what's happening there and, and how you take a little bit of a different view strategically based on what that means. I want to go back. We were talking about supply chain modernization efforts um, and get your take on modernization efforts in general, um, especially from what you saw when you were in your leadership position within the Army. Um, any examples of what works? And you could pick an industry if it's supply chain, great, but across the board, I'd say all of these different modernization efforts that have popped up. Uh, I, well. <laughs> Before I forget it, because uh, I am getting old, the first thing is we didn't have modernization priorities. And so every time we're speaking, when we're talking about testifying, every time I went up there for the readiness hearings, the posture hearings, every year we got beat up because where's the Army's modernization strategy? So kudos to the fact that we listened. Uh, we did it. And then we had, had a little bit mission creep and we had the six plus two. And then we keep throwing, we keep mixing the ball a little bit. So uh because again, the more you have, the more complicated it gets <laughs> to, to prioritize them. I think the best example is uh, soldier lethality. 
I think if I was to, and I, and I, I, I think you would agree, uh, the, you know, the combat lethality of our soldiers from weapon systems to goggles and those, because when you put that in a comparison to an air missile defense system, to a future vertical lift, to a next generation combat vehicle, to the net, there can't be anything more uh, spaghettied up than a network. You know, so I think I think that one had it had the right people pushing it. It had the right prioritization. It had the right and it had the right soldier input to help it move along uh, pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah, I think um, and I think it had the right back to trust and relationships between, you know, you've got a background in Rangers and, you know, there was a good from the special ops to the airborne ranger all the way down to common infantry. Uh, And it was just dissectable enough individual technologies could more easily earn their way on there where you didn't have to, you know, go modernize a ship or something else like that. Uh, And so I think that that's a, that's a great example. Um, When you were in the field now, again, maybe been a a year or two, yeah, there's been a year or two for all of us now, you know, for these young technology companies, now that you've seen them, what's your advice to them? Because, you know, many times they have a technology but maybe not a solution. Uh, you know, what drove you nuts when you were in the field and you got some new piece of kit? And and what really made said, oh man, this this really uh, makes a difference. I'm I'm interested. I think two key words, Hondo. I think interoperability. So you had to make sh- number one. You had to make sure when you were trying to field something new, it would play with the other systems, like uh, fires, mm-hmm. so you could actually do time-sensitive stuff. I think the biggest takeaway, though, is integratable. And I think what... No one wants more boxes. Nobody wants more weight. Nobody wants more wires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the, so the key is how do you take an existing system? How do you enable it? Is it software? Is it a laser? What is it? But how do you how do you integrate it to what currently exists? And again, oh, and, you know, and always keeping in mind and swap starts to become a big buzzword, but swap is still a reality when talk, when you're talking size, weight and power and it, and it, you know, and it, it's not getting easier when you talk, when you talk about 150 kilowatt laser, yeah. that, that, that takes some energy. Yeah. I often talk to, you know, some of these, the smaller guys and they have great technology, great algorithms. And I, I say, it's just like your phone, right? You don't want another have to carry another cord to talk to your car and you don't want to have to another battery, you know, your battery drains in a half an hour versus 10 hours and, and those kind of things. Um, but it is amazing the ideas and the, 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 you know, what is happening in a commercial world that no, there's, there are, spe- there are spectacular companies out here and, I, and you too obviously know that. And I think, I think the frustration is how do you get away from this on the acquisition process? We've, we've, you know, way back to when we had contingency dollars for the wars to the uh, you know, other transaction authorities. But why can't, you know, your phone's a great example. You know, I want something commercially off the shelf. I was walking by the, you know, the Apple store yesterday. Uh, I want to be able to buy that now, but fully knowing next year, the 16's coming up. And so why do I, so why, and why do I have to keep testing and demonstrating that the phone works? You know, but but uh, but a much more rapid, agile, which we just we, we say it, we talk about it. It makes a hundred percent, maybe a hundred and ten percent sense. But yet, but yet we just we just keep staying in that where we where we spend so much money, we take so much time, and then by the time we get the equipment in the hands of the warfighter, it's a, it's an analog device versus a digital device. What's your take on the problem? Is it a matter of 
policy and authority? Is it a cultural problem? It's both. Uh, policy and authority, and I'm not an acquisition executive, but policy, that, that, that guy is. Policy and authorities for sure, but the cultural. Just make a, you know, just make a decision, you know, and do it. So with that, when it comes down to the issue, technology is obviously front and center, but at the end of the day, it's a human endeavor, right? We like to talk about talent and workforce. What's your take on the outlook there? The Army's having trouble recruiting. What are you seeing on the industry side? How can we foster more interest in this area? Well, these are highly technical fields, which so again, from uh, education, training, experiential, academic, et cetera, you know, you're talking up here now versus, you know, on uh, integration engineers, test engineers, software engineers, mechanical engineers, et cetera. So it's a, it's a field that we as a nation need to keep making the investment on and all the STEM efforts and everything else are wonderful, you know, but, the, uh, but it's a very, it, that is a very competitive marketplace out here. We're all, look, we're all looking for the same qualifications writ large across industry. So it's very, very, very competitive. And so how, how industry grows their own, how they invest, you know, what, what kind of intern programs you do, exchange programs you do, fellowship programs you do, what, however, however you groom that to, uh, to grow your own. And I think talent, I think that's probably part of the problem what's happened in the military. It's the talent, talent management's like a buzzword like mentorship used to be. Everybody said, said you, have to have, you have to have a mentor. You have to have a mentor. You have to have a mentor. And you ask most people today, who is your mentor? And they, don't have, they didn't have one. Uh, so, how, so how do you foster those kind of relationships? But, but talent management takes time, effort, investment uh, to groom people. Uh, and that's, I think, probably where the military, and, and there's a lot of reasons that we took some shortcuts when we started cutting schools and things back in the, you know, in the surge in Iraq, the surge in Afghanistan. And we were... When I took over the G3 job in 15, we were, we were hurting on, on manpower uh, based on the uh, end strength going down. We were in trouble, and the Posture Act saved us. But uh, So now as you're watching that end strength go down, and now you're watching the pipeline of people, because the economy, the jobs are out. Again, you, should, you read the paper today based on the, the article about the Ukraine funding and how industry hasn't really realized that money yet because they still can't find the, you know, there are hundreds of people short in their engineering jobs today, you know. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's an opportunity in the challenge of, uh, you know, folks that want to serve, maybe they don't want to serve in uniform, maybe they want to serve in industry, maybe they want to serve uh, in government labs or depots and stuff. And so I think, you know, some of it is trying to get the word out. There's lots of ways to serve the country. Right. Not You don't have to be in uniform and be the first one to get on the airplane to be serving your country. And I think, you know, I think with Ukraine and now this recent, you know, conflict in uh, Israel has shown uh, a need for folks to be serving in the country in whatever capacity they're, they're, uh, they're most qualified uh, for or, or is uh, most motivated to do. What's your take, you know, if we talk about Israel and Hamas, obviously you've got a lot of, you know, um, connective tissue there. Um, how has that changed your your company in the last couple of weeks? Uh, how are you, you know, dealing with that uh, and all the surge and, and all the stress that adds to, I'm sure, a lot of your uh, employees. It, well, you know, on a personal level, it's it's horrific to all of us because of our relationships there and knowing again uh, from those who have suffered loss, have suffered injury, have lost homes, uh, etc. So it, it's painful on a personal level for us. Uh, 
and I and I and I lost count now because I'm on my fifth year for the company. How many is? I mean, you, you kind of just don't realize until something like this happens how many people I actually know there. So it's 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 a lot. And then you watch. Uh, they are such selfless servants. Then you watch a lot of these guys that are very good friends of mine who all serve, majority served, uh, are all now back in uniform as mobilized reservists. So they're so now they're not at work anymore. They're on the front lines. And then you watch, you know, good friends like Mickey Laurie, who is the Raphael USA president and CEO, his three young boys, who one just got out two months ago, is back in uniform on the front lines. So from a family perspective, I mean... I only had one in at, a, at one time. I can't imagine having three and being in as a loose term, being on the front line. You know, uh, to have that many, if anybody ever had three at one time in Iraq or Afghanistan, it's just, it, it just, I don't know how you sleep. So, so very traumatic for all of us. Uh, and from a business sense, it's had us, it, it, as so much stuff has been moving here in America and it was very hard at AU. We chose to stay at AUSA this year because we, we had business to do here in the States, but it was very hard to do. I'm glad we did it. Uh, but we have... There is a big shift internal focus now because of getting supply, getting stuff, just like you say, like, like you're watching the two batteries go back from the States, the Iron Dome batteries, back to Israel. There, there is a focus on internal reprioritization, and it, affects the, and it affects the company because certain people are out for certain periods of time, and so it's going to cause hiccups on certain programs based on, is, you know, is the engineer out you know, is that because something's happened to them personally or they're supporting something, et cetera? So it, it complicates life significantly. Well, you, you talked about keeping you up at night, and I won't ask what keeps you up at night necessarily, but this changes the dynamic. We've talked so much about China, Russia. What's your take on the threat environment these days? What should we be watching? Well, it's stuff we kind of always knew. Yeah. You know, it's a dangerous world, you know, and so what, what I was talking about, we had been preparing for Eastern Europe for a long, we knew it was inevitable. And I, and I, and I, as predictable as that was, people still didn't want to believe it. Uh, when you talk about malicious actors, you know, the, the, the number one uh, nation state for terrorism is behind all of this. And to deny that or think or, or think something otherwise, because we've been dealing with this. You mentioned 20. We've been dealing with this for a long time. You know, when Americans were getting killed very frequently in Iraq over my, you know, three and a half, three plus tours there. So uh, horrific stuff. And so, so, to, so to write it off and pretend it's not real uh, and not prepare for it. And so now I think as you look at Indo-PACOM and what kind of, again, what kind of a threat, what, what makes all, as we always uh, said, it was the three plus two, the four plus one as you ran around the globe and defined, you know, Russia back when and North Korea back then, you know, homeland, Iran, China, and you, you know, and you just, and, and the whole, the Korean Peninsula deal and you just kind of played Russian roulette. No play on words there, but that's uh, that's what it kind of felt like, you know. Now you're just seeing now you're just seeing it play out. Yeah, so it, I mean, again, prevents uh, pre, um, presents a huge challenge for the industrial base. It does because our industrial base tends to be hyper efficient, but sometimes very fragile because it's or brittle, built for maybe one one and a half at a time at best. How do you see us? getting back to a more robust industrial base to support the military that's going to have greater and greater challenges. What's, what would you say that two or three things that if we had it right, it would start to, you know, start to present itself. And that's, and, a, that's a tough question, Hondo. I think, I think number one, it's the, the uh, organic industrial base has to fix itself. 
I think that's key. You know, what hurts industry is predictability. You know, and, and uh, what I didn't realize as much when I was in uniform as I do now is how much we expect industry to bet on the come, make the investment. You make the investment, you do exactly what the customer asks you to do, and then there's no order. So if you're t- if you're telling somebody to crank it up so I can go go to shifts or whatever 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 you're asking them to do based on what you want to come off that production line, but there's no there's no view of what that commitment is. You're asking people to make that investment without any commitment. It it can't it doesn't work that way. And, and so so back to the acquisition process, back to the you know you know what's the, what's the life cycle of things? What's the sustainment rate? What's you know any type of supply rate? How do we get more predictable about that? Just like we're trying to replace. So what you know? So what's it you know? And, and, and it's fairly fundamental. You know, what are your war reserves? What's your stockpiles look like? What's your training? What's your training basic load look like? What's your contingency load look like? Do the math. And this is what you need in preposition stock or or shore or or or, or in bunker somewhere or whatever. I've got one more. I wanted to go back um, to just the dynamic of working with a foreign parent company, um, because as we think through creating the strongest business and partnerships we can, we want to continue to work with allied countries. So curious if you have any advice for uh, perhaps leaders of uh, companies in allied countries that are looking to set up U.S. subsidiaries to do business in our defense ecosystem. It's a hard process to go through. Um, and, and I'm curious if you have advice to others that are thinking about it. Well, do <laughs> do your homework. Mm-hmm. Uh, be clear what you're bringing here, and do a market assessment. Mm-hmm. Understand what you're getting yourself into, because again, if you're an F-word company, you're you're already behind the Powerball. Mm-hmm. So, how do you overcome that? So, it really does very important about what you're trying to bring. So as long as the requ- again re- requirements, another one of those over overused words, it's supposed to mean something. If there's an actual requirement, mm-hmm. then you you definitely want to stay in that lane, and you want to figure out again before you get involved what's the, you know, what's the resource funding stream behind it, mm-hmm. what what enables that to happen from NDAA or whatever, what what gives you that. But I would say most 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 importantly is back to you doing your homework. You'll need help. I don't know how many companies since I've gone through this process I have coached through the process. It seems it, it seems straightforward. It kind of is, but there's so depending on what kind of company you're trying to become, and I, and I, so that that becomes how you def, so to become a cleared company here. Are you just going for an SSA, just a security agreement, or are you going for a full proxy? You know, so the whole FCL process is a 28-day clock. When they hit the clock, you know, you got 28 days to boom, boom, boom. I think that was about seven. That's about seven different documents, if my memory is correct. And then depending on what you do on the uh, foreign oversight, you know, conflict of interest stuff, that's a whole nother ball of wax. And those are, those are humongous documents humongous documents that take a lot of, I mean, all for a good, this is all about protecting national security. This is all important stuff. So it's not, it's not, it's not meant to imply it's not important, but the homework and time required to do that, understanding what that playing field looks like before you get off the bench, uh, you want to understand it because it's, it's, 
a journey. Yeah. Big investment and implications around things like tech transfer too. Oh, that huge. you're right, do your no, homework. No, and, no, all the electronic peak, the technical control, all that stuff is is quality assurance, quality control. There's some heavy duty stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're especially busy right now, and to get your take on um, both leadership on the government side and, and industry now is really interesting, uh, especially opening up with trust and the importance of relationships, partnerships, I think is is so relevant to our listeners. Um, prioritization, people, soldier input, I think that was great advice to um, companies thinking about entering the market, um, and then ultimately partnering and, and knowing your customer too seems key. So um, thank you so much for joining us today and for Thanks all for your, your Thanks, advice. Buddy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.